Just a little. Yeah, not too much. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I always like to share something with you. This is not a public service announcement. Also, Phil always likes for me to share things because that means he does not have to talk as long, talk as long in his lesson. Thank you. I want y'all to know that little things can mean so much. Nadine, who is 91 years old, sent me out of the blue in January uh, this booklet with a couple of other little prayer booklets, pamphlets from Guidepost. Now Nadine, and you'll have to figure this out and ask them, Nadine is the aunt of both Harlan and Cookie Booth. So that's kind of East Tennessee, <laughs> because I think maybe their grandfathers were brothers or something really weird, I mean, but she is precious. And this, so before I pray, I wanted to read this to you because it's just short and it's so, I thought it was so great. It's written by Elizabeth Cheney, whoever that is. Faith came singing into my room and other guests took flight. Grief, anxiety, fear, and gloom sped out into the night. I wondered that such peace could be but faith, said Jane, gently, don't you see that they can never live with me? So I just, out of this whole book, that touched me the most. So let's just bow our heads in prayer this morning, please. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that we can be here together. Be with those members who are not feeling up to par, or who are traveling. We thank you for the beautiful sunshine today and the temperate temperature. We ask that when anxiety, fear, grief, loss, when they come to us, we pray that we will always turn to you for comfort and turn to each other. <coughs> Bless this class for what it means to each of us. Bless Phil as he gives the lesson. Bless him and Kim as they attend services together. And just help each one of us to walk in your way. We ask this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Are you ready? I think I am.
It took out a row of chairs because it's spring break, they were expecting a full house, so I felt a little too far away. Thank you, Linda. You always saved me from myself. Well, I hope you've had a good week. As we've begun Lent together, and People ask how my week was, and I said, well, I was on spring break from school, so what complaint could I possibly have other than it didn't feel like spring uh, until today? Um, but it was nice to have a different change of pace. So we are in the first Sunday of Lent, and we're in the third week of our study of Ephesians, and uh, we've left our picture up again uh, to kind of remind us of the, the wonder uh, that Paul has here um, in this book that we're particularly in these first three chapters, um, he's trying to describe what is the case Right, sort of in uh, in the indicative voice. What what is the case? What is it that God has done? And the the passage out of chapter three, particularly the first part of chapter three, is interesting. I'm always kind of curious. Um, some of you grew up with what we call the church year and the lectionary. Um, if you're like me, I didn't grow up with the church year and the lectionary, but I've come to appreciate it. And I'm always interested to see where certain texts fall in the lectionary. So if we were following the lectionary every week, uh, which means a lot of churches across denominations are focusing on those texts in a given Sunday. Um, the opening verses, the first half of chapter 3 of Ephesians, um, comes every year on a particular date. Um, You've heard me talk about the lectionary. It's a three-year cycle, year A, B, and C. Um, and often the readings are different in those three years, not just the gospel readings, but the other readings as well. But this text comes every year on Epiphany. Uh, on Epiphany. Ephesians 3, uh, 1 through 13 or 14 comes every year on Epiphany, which if you recall, Epiphany is the day, I'm getting help, Epiphany, yeah, that was an Epiphany, um, Epiphany comes after, you remember Christmas is a 12 day season, um, and after the 12 days of Christmas, the season of Christmas, on January 6th, every year, comes the day, and then depending on which tradition you're from, the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany, of course, um, lots of you in your life, at one day, time or another, you have all had an Epiphany of some sort. Right, something that's been, literally means sort of to unveil, something that's been revealed. Right, uh, something that's 
un unveiled and uncovered that you wouldn't know that in a moment you see something um, maybe for the very first time. And it's also the time uh, in, when we tell the story of Christmas uh, where we usually celebrate uh, the arrival of these guests from the East, right? The wise men, the magi, who, who were Gentiles, right? Uh, as recorded in, they show up in Matthew's Gospel, right? And, and it reminds us uh, of the breadth of this story that even from the very beginning, from Jesus' birth, uh, the, the Gentiles are included in the story. And so it's interesting to me that in this chapter 3 where Paul is going to talk about this great unveiling, this great epiphany, if you will, that we're reminded of that each year on January 6th. And it has this connection between this Jewish baby and these Gentile magi. So, just an interesting tidbit. No ch extra charge for that this morning as we get started. Um, I just, I just was kind of fascinated by that as a kind of way, way in. And so, just to kind of recall, I mean, Paul starts off, you recall, with this blessing in, in the opening chapters. And then last week um, talked about this new humanity that God has created in Christ, that out of two, Jew and Gentile, uh, God has broken down the dividing wall, and out of two created one new humanity. And now Paul is going to step back and he's going to talk to the Gentiles, uh, particularly in this circular letter, which we believe went to Ephesus, but went to other cities as well. And going to talk about the church's role in being stewards of this extraordinary and breathtaking revelation that from the very beginning, God intended to bring the Gentiles in to the people of God. But it's only just now been revealed. And that Paul himself has become a steward, right? A steward of that revelation. Something's been entrusted to him. A steward is someone who's something's given to them to entrust. That he's become a steward of this revelation, of this epiphany. And it's the church's task, likewise, to be a steward of this revelation. So that's what he's going to do. But again, he's talking about what God has done yet again. And then he's going to, he's going to start chapter 3 um, By, by doing that, he, and he, once again, grammatical things. He starts to say one thing in verse 1, and then he has a 13-verse interruption. <laughs> he never finishes the sentence uh, that he started in verse 1 until he gets to verse 14. So that may, that may be lost in your translation, but again, it's one of those interesting things when you read it, that um, 
he's so overcome by so many things. I don't know if you've ever found yourself that way, right? Where you start to say one thing and something just catches your attention and you, and you kind of forget where you were. Um, that's almost what chapter three is. Um, but he's trying, he's heading towards a prayer. And the last part of chapter three is a prayer. Um, we get to kind of overhear Paul's prayer uh, for the people that this uh, letter is going to. Um, and that's a kind of beautiful thing. I don't know. Um, we don't often, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've overheard someone's prayer, if you, if you heard your children overheard their praying, or maybe you overheard your parents praying when you were young. Um, and it's always kind of a weird thing, right? Because you wonder, like, it's like, look like eavesdropping on someone's telephone call. It's like, should I be listening? Um, but Paul, Paul wants us to hear very much uh, what his prayer is, and that will be the last part. So there's two sort of sections here. This first section where he's going to interrupt himself to, to talk a little bit about his own calling to the stewardship of this revelation, and then the church's call to this revelation, and the purpose of the church. He has one of, in this passage, near around, around verse 10, he has one of the highest statements of the church's mission in the world, anywhere in the New Testament. And uh, it'll be surprising uh, to sort of compare that um, you know, you can't, you can't be an organization in 21st century America and not have a mission statement. I mean, you, who, who would you be? I mean, everybody's got to have a mission statement. Um, most of them are really bad. Um, and most people don't even know what they are. Um, but you can't be a self-respecting organization and not have a mission statement. Well, Paul's going to tell us, he's going to reveal to anyone who has ears to hear this circular letter, this pretty exalted mission statement of what, why God has called the church into being. And um, I'll let you decide um, this week as you, as you ponder chapter 3 um, whether whatever mission statement we might have for Muncie or whatever church, whatever, however, whatever we think the church is for, let you decide if... Um, whether our mission statement and the way we conceive it might be a little too puny, uh, given <laughs> given what Paul's thinking. Because Paul Paul is just thinking. I mean, he's just thinking this again. I mean, when he's looking at what God is doing in and through the church, um, he's just dumbfounded at what God has called the church to be part of. So that's the that's the outline. So let's let's read. So we're in chapter 3 of Ephesians. This is the reason, meaning everything I've said so far in the first two chapters. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. That's his opening half sentence. And just to recall that we believe that this letter was written from prison. So he's literally 
a prisoner for Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. Because if you go and read uh, in, in the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapters 21 and following, uh, you find out that Paul gets in trouble um, because of his work with the Gentiles. Because word's out that he's telling Jews that they don't have to follow the law anymore, uh, which actually wasn't true. Um, and so he's trying to convince people, and he gets thrown in prison, and then he appeals you know, to Rome because they found out he's a Roman citizen. And so that's how he ends up eventually in Rome. Right. And where tradition has that he finally uh, is martyred in Rome. And so it all goes back to his mission to the Gentiles. And so he is this notion of Jew and Gentile being together. It's not like this is just a theoretical issue for Paul. Paul literally gave his life for this truth that in God, in Christ, God had broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and out of two created one new humanity. That wasn't a theoretical issue for him. I mean, he really gave his life for that because he tried to live that out in places where he went. And it eventually led to his death. So Paul doesn't think this is an implication of the gospel. Paul thinks this is the part of the gospel. This is part of the good news. God has created one new humanity. Okay? And the question is, how do we live that out? Because it, it, that's the reality. The reality is there is one new humanity, and we're called to bear witness to that. And he sought to do that. So Paul was a prisoner for Jesus Christ, for the sake of the Gentiles. And now he feels like he needs to offer this long aside um, because he thinks, well, maybe some people don't actually know this story of how he came to be. Uh, this steward of this story. So he says, for surely you have already heard, verse 2, of the stewardship. Your, your translation might say commission or something like that, but it's actually better. It's, it's heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me for you. Right? Notice, that, notice it was given to him, right? A steward, something's been entrusted to him. But a steward doesn't just hold on to it. A steward takes care of it and offers it to other people. So this, this stewardship was given to me, right? The commission of this stewardship of God's grace was given me for you. And how the mystery, right? This mystery that God always from the beginning was going to bring Jew and Gentile together. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. It was unveiled to me. I didn't sit down and figure it out. Didn't go into my study, think real hard, and thought, hmm, Jew and Gentile. Yeah, they should be together. Now this was revealed by revelation as I wrote above in a few words reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become 
Now here's three things he says. Have become co-heirs, co-members of the same body, and co-sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now you may have remembered back in chapter 2, I said there was these three things that he named that had this, this prefix to it that gets lost in translation. This was back in verses uh, 5 and 6 of chapter 2 where he says, even though we were dead through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, raised us up together with him, and seated us with him together in the heavenly places. All those three things, and he's talking to Jew and Gentile alike, that all these things happen together. Same thing here. He's got these three phrases that he has this um, same prefix to in Greek that gets lost in our translation. But it has to do with, we're doing this together. They're co-heirs. Right? They're co-heirs. They're co-members of the same body. Right? In fact, he has to make up a word there in Greek. This shows up no other place that we know of. Right? It's like, you're co-corporate. Like corporate means it's like bodied. Right? It comes from the word for body. You're co-corporate together. He just makes a word up. Because God's done something new. We don't have words for this. Right? So you're co-heirs. You've got this inheritance. He talked about that earlier. You're co-heirs, just like the Jews are. You're made into one body. You're, you're part of the same body. And you are co-sharers in the promise of Christ through the gospel. All of that, you're together, Jew and Gentile. That's the revelation. All of you together. One new humanity. He's still going. This is all one sentence. Of this gospel, I have been made a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Notice there again, God's activity of this gospel. This notice he says, this gospel, this is good news. Right? Of this gospel, that God has made one new humanity out of two. Of this gospel, I have become, I have been made a servant. Now it's not as though, you know, Paul thought, um, one day he was just trying to decide what he was going to do with his life. And he thought, well, maybe, maybe dentistry. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll give myself to, you know, people's incisors and their molars. Thought, well, no, maybe, maybe I'll give myself to, you know, this, this gospel of grace. Um, yeah, I think I'll do that. And so I'll, be, I'll become a minister of the gospel. No, he said he was made a servant. Right? It's in the passive voice. Your translation may not reflect that. But it's in the passive voice. He was made a servant of this gospel. Right? 
that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of the saints, and again here, he's, he uses hyperbole that's lost in the translation. He actually says, I'm the leastest of the least. Right? The most leastest. <laughs> right? It's really what he does is sort of ungrammatical. But again, he's trying to say what he's like. I, I am the least of the least. I'm the most leastest of the apostles. Right? Of the saints. Because again, you recall, I mean, you never remember his life. I mean, he spent a good bit of his life persecuting the early church. He was trying to kill this thing that God was doing. Right? Back when he was Saul. Right? It's easy to forget that. Right? And to him, this is, this is astounding. That with incredible zeal, he had tried to undermine what now he believed God has made him to be a servant of. And try to get your head around that if you're Paul. And so he believes that God has made him what he is. But he still regards himself as the leastest of the saints. Although I'm that, although I'm the leastest, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ. The boundless riches. And again, here, we don't have one word. It's incomprehensible, inscrutable. Um, it just means, yeah, you can't get your head around it. It's, it's this all over again, hands extended. He just says this boundless, boundless riches of Christ. And to make... Right, what was given to him? And, and to make everyone see what is the, and here's the same word, stewardship again. Yours, your translation may say plan or something else like that, but it's still the same word he used earlier. The stewardship of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. Okay, so, so everyone could see the stewardship of the mystery. So he's a steward. There's a steward of this mystery that God had always intended, right, to bring Jew and Gentile together. So that, here's, here's, here's the hinge of the chapter. Here's the breathtaking part in verse 10. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich multifaceted variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let's keep going. We'll come back to this. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. Let's go back to verse 10. So that's his whole interruption, right? 
Now he goes back when verse 14 starts to pick up where he left off in verse 1 to finish that sentence. <laughs> okay. He's just caught up just like he was earlier on in all that God had done and just sort of has to call everyone to bless God what God has done in Christ. Here, he's caught up in this, this crazy sense and realization that God has entrusted to him the stewardship of this mystery that from all eternity God had intended to create out of all the divisiveness of humankind one new humanity in Christ. And that he of all people the one who came 2,000 years later to be known as the apostle to the Gentiles that he of all people was given this stewardship of this mystery. But not just him. Because in verse 10 he says, it's the church. Now he broadens it. It's the church. That the, through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now here we have to back up a little bit. He's used this language of rulers and authorities or powers and principalities, which is two ways of translating the same phrase in the original language. Um, and it's we have to know a little bit about their worldview to understand what he, Paul's talking about here. In Paul's day, pretty much everybody believed that whatever was going on in this earthly realm was mirrored by a heavenly realm where there were powers that partly controlled what was going on here. And all those powers, and that this was part of God's way of ordering human life. But these powers themselves, okay, had gone rogue, and even though they were meant and could be used for, for God's good pleasure and for ordering human life, that they could also undermine the purposes of God, and that it could be fallen. And so Paul picks up that worldview and is talking to people who have this worldview who have a lot of fear and anxiety about their lives being controlled by these so-called external forces beyond which they had over which they had no control. Now you might think, well that's just complete mythological thinking, silly people. We have our own way of talking about this, right? Uh, of course, we're more sophisticated. You know, we don't talk about the, you know, the the heavenly the heavenly places. You know, the heavenly forces. Um, but we talk all kinds of things like, well, you know, uh, we can't do that because we're. You know, they're, they're, they're economic forces at play. Where do you go to find the economic forces? 
Come point them out to me. Where would you go? I mean, just come, just take me. I'll, we'll jump in the car right now, and you take me on a tour of the economic forces. And yet all of us feel like our daily lives are driven by those forces. Well, what are they? Well, part of what's trying to be named here um, is all of us have a sense that when human beings live their lives together, we create social structures that have them set, that have a kind of spirit to them, right? Um, that are bigger than, that are more than the sum of their parts, right? Economic forces are are things that people that they're created, if you will, by people living in certain ways together that are more than just the sum parts of the, uh, the sum of in people's individual choices. And, and you get swept up in that, that no one person controls that. I mean, who controls the economy? Well, nobody does. I mean, some people think the Fed has some levers, but even they will tell you, you know, it's an art more than it is a science, right? Because it's, it's bigger than any one of us. And so we too have this sense that our lives are being driven by, by forces that are bigger than us. Okay. Um, and sometimes they can be used for good and are used for good, but sometimes they're malevolent. Sometimes you can talk about the spirit of the age, right? The spirit of the age. Um, or spirits of the age. So we're not, it's not that crazy of an idea to find yourself getting caught up in something that's clearly bigger than you and is more than the sum total. I mean, I was reminded of it yesterday. I may have told you this story before. Um, you know, a couple of, there was a rivalry game played last night. Um, some of you may know about it in basketball. <laughs> Um, some of you know I have a small interest in that rivalry game. I used to have, as a student at Duke, I had season tickets for three years back in the glory days. Um, and I have never been in a situation where I felt more scared for my life than being in Cameron Indoor Stadium at Duke as the basketball arena when they played home game against Carolina. <laughs> there was a spirit in that arena that was scary. I mean, I've never felt anything like it in my life. It was both exhilarating and terrifying. Because you realize, I mean, it was something going on in there that was bigger than any one person. And it was bigger than just the sum total of all the energy that those 9,000 people brought. There's something going on there. And at, at one moment you thought, you could get this crowd to do anything. Right? And then you go back and look to turn to a much less uh, innocent example. 
and you look at some of those old photographs of thousands of people on a block in a town not that long ago where thousands of people are watching a lynching as if it's a Sunday night, Sunday afternoon entertainment event. And you think, how is that possible? It's possible to get caught up by something bigger than you and to feel like you're being driven by forces over which you don't have complete control. Okay. This is what Paul's talking about here. And here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying that the church, by being a kind of foretaste of God's new humanity, is bearing witness to these powers that something new is happening. These powers which can be used to divide human beings against each other and often have been, right? That they are seeing themselves this new reality. You can believe when Jew and Gentile sat down and ate together in Paul's day, which no one in their life had ever seen, people knew something was going on. Now, were Jew and Gentile <coughs> living peacefully? It was hard. Almost all of Paul's letters are written to cities where Jew and Gentile are trying to live together, are trying to live out the reality that Paul says has already happened in Christ. Paul nowhere says, go try to be the new humanity. No, he says, be what you are. God has made you a new, the new humanity. So bear witness to the powers that this is true. This is what God has called the church to do. So in Jesus' day, it was Jew and Gentile was what divided people into different humanities. But every age, every culture, every time has its own way of dividing us into us's and them's where the them's are not us and are not fully human like we are and are somehow less than. And we could sit here, we could name a hundred different ways in which we divide ourselves, right? Wouldn't be hard. The sad part is it'd be far too easy to do that. And the good news the mystery is that God has made us one in Christ. God has made us one in Christ. And the, and the stewardship, the task that the church has been called, is by God's power, not in our own strength, that we in some imperfect way bear witness to that reality in the world. We are an anticipation a foretaste of God's new humanity. That in Christ, that's who we are. Now, I don't know who you thought the church was, 
But we're not just the people who in our own will get together on Sunday morning because we kind of like each other. I mean, we do on our best days, kind of like each other. <laughs> but Paul wants that to be grounded in something much deeper, more profound that God's doing. Because the truth of the matter is, I mean, almost every culture everywhere has a proverb, something like birds of a feather flock together. Right. But what God has done is has put birds of very different feathers together. And that bears witness not to your preference, not to the people you want to hang around with, but what God is doing in the world. And if we aren't bearing witness to that, then we've just made the church a social club. And you can get that anywhere. You can get birds of a feather to flock together anywhere. That's not who we're called to be. Just like-minded people who sort of have the same politics or have the same social class or have the same whatever. And that's what binds us together. No, God has made us one new humanity. And so then Paul has to pray for us because we can't be that in our own strength. We can't even give the world a foretaste of that. We don't have to be perfect. A lot of people say, how can you have so much hope in the church? The church is so broken. Absolutely. My hope is not in uh, my experience of the church. It's not because I've had such wonderful experience of church that I believe this is of God. No. I have hope in the church because what God has revealed, God is doing in the church. And what God wants to do in the church and for 2,000 years, God has not given up on the church, though we've given God plenty of reason to. That's why I hope in the church. And that's why I want you to hope in the church. It's what God has done. And what God has promised to do through the church. So what, what we need, though, we need to remind ourselves, <laughs> what has God called us to do? And you're saying, but we're failing at it. Absolutely. And so it's appropriate we're in Lent. It's a moral achievement to know that you're failing. Okay? The fact that we can name that the church is not yet what it's called to be, that's good news. It's not something to be depressed about. It's that we've actually internalized enough of what God has called us to do that we know we're not doing it. I'd be much less hopeful if I just thought we all thought we were doing grand. No, we're not doing grand. We still have a long way to go. So here's the prayer, and I'll let this, hear what, we're running out of time, but I'm like Paul, we just can't stop here. For that reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth takes its name. Not just family, he's thinking here of kins and tribes. He's not thinking like biological families. He's saying all of them have the same father, Jew, Gentile. They're all named after the one father. I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, God might grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit because you can't do this on your own. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And the use here are all plural. So he's saying... Right. And be strengthened in your all's inner being. 
He's not talking about just your individual being, like your all inner being. That that you may that Christ may dwell in your all's heart. Y'all. <laughs> Ewan's. Right? In your all's hearts. Through faith, as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Right? I mean, here's again, he's just gone to saying he, he can't talk. How can anyone comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. No one can. But he said, I'm praying that you might, you might get swept up in this to realize that God is sweeping you up in this. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay. I mean, if you can't get swept up into that, you know, we need the paddles to restart your heart, <laughs> right? I mean, everything that Paul has to say in chapters four through six, presume that you and I have got caught up in what God has done that has been revealed to us that we didn't figure out. This glorious calling to, in some imperfect way, by God's strength, be an anticipation of God's one new humanity. Let's pray. Gracious God, we we don't have words, and like Paul, we find ourselves reaching for words that don't seem adequate. We pray that by your Spirit, we might be caught up into this glorious vision of what you are about in the world, and that you have made us stewards of this gospel, stewards of this mystery, and that you might empower us by your Spirit to live out this calling, to be what you've made us, one new humanity, that the world might see that the divisions and animosities and hostilities that mark our daily lives are not the life you've called us to, not the life you desire for any of us. And may we, in some imperfect way, be your embodied good news to the world. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Amen.